Be raw, be open, be fucking real, because the last thing this world needs is more fake-ass shit. I wrote this episode a week ago, but I hadn't recorded it yet because it's a hard one. I'm actually telling secrets today, but it's so much bigger than me, and I really don't want to fuck it up. The deadline for recording is tonight, and it's now 3 a.m. I've spent most of the night avoiding my microphone. My inner saboteur has been hard at work, giving me all kinds of reasons to doubt myself today. But as life would have it, for some reason tonight, I received four separate DMs from women saying they could relate to my story, and I was reminded that this really isn't about me. This episode is quite possibly the most important thing I'm ever going to say. It's a heavy one. Yes, some parts are going to be hard to hear and it's going to be hard for me to say, but there's a lot we can learn from it. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I have no professional training. I'm only speaking from my own personal experience telling my story. Welcome to Big Lush Energy, dedicated to helping you navigate life's hurdles with your head held high. We're celebrating wins, learning from our losses, and laughing at ourselves along the way. <laughs> now, here's your favorite hype woman, Jaina Marie. Jaina Marie. Once I went to look at a new home in a housing development that was being built on a place called Dilworth Mountain in Kelowna. It was a neighborhood set away from everyone else, kind of on the side of the hill. It was so picturesque, rows upon rows of nearly identical homes with paint colors that had to be approved by the developers so that everything fit the aesthetic. There were white fences around each property, pretty shutters on all the windows, and beautifully landscaped streets. This was clearly where the upper middle class came to rest. The woman working in the sales center said to me very confidently, here, you can let your kids play by themselves at the park and you'll know they're going to be safe. My ex turned to me with a convincing smile like, well, isn't that great? But he was met with my straight face. I knew that lady was selling a lie. I knew all too well that a child's safety had absolutely nothing to do with the price tag of a neighborhood. Unfortunately, My experience told me that predators were everywhere, including in big fancy houses and in good families, and a quick drive up a mountainside and a fresh coat of paint was not going to change that. My sister Carly and I are 14 months apart. We've always been best friends. If you heard last week's episode, you got a little bit of a taste of that. As little girls, our great grandma would sew us matching outfits and my mom would dress us like twins. We looked like geeks. (laughs) She was a very loving mother who was also very busy trying to rebuild herself after leaving our abusive dad. He was a horrible person with addiction issues and a temper that he often took out on her. There were times as kids when Carly and I would hide in a closet together while Frank threw our mom around. He was scary and unpredictable, especially as a child. There was even drama after the two of them split up. We were being babysat by our grandma one day, and he came by her house saying that he was supposed to take us for the day. My grandma had no idea that he was lying, so she gave us to him. He told us we were going to go to Disneyland, but instead, he took us to a pool at a dingy hotel in a town called Vernon. 
We didn't even get a hotel room there. We slept in his van outside. Meanwhile, my mom was in a panic for two days, having no idea where her daughters were. She didn't know where he took us or if she'd ever see us again. This was just one of the ways that he tried to control and manipulate her, but she was so determined to survive without him. As kids, she always reminded us that he didn't pay us any sort of child support, and even if he did, she didn't want his money. All she wanted was freedom from the abuse. Then my mom was in a serious car accident. She was hospitalized, and we had to go live with Frank in Washington while she learned how to walk again. Frank's lifestyle definitely did not suit having two little girls, so he left us with his mom. We called her Nana Hyde. She spent her days sitting in her trailer home watching soap operas and chain smoking and told us to stay outside. The property around her place wasn't exactly kid-friendly. It was surrounded by tall, dry, overgrown grass and rodent traps everywhere. We had nothing to play with. Carly and I made friends with the neighborhood kids who once in a while would pass little toys through the fence for us to play with. Nana Hyde had absolutely no patience for us at all. She gave us gravel in the mornings to keep us sleepy and put us to bed really early at night. In episode one, I mentioned all of this. I even told a story of how one time my sister threw up in her porridge and Nana made her eat it. At night, we slept on the ground in the living room while she sat at her table only steps away from us with one eye watching us and the other on the TV and a cigarette always lit like incense. Anytime Carly and I tried to whisper to each other or even move, she'd tell us not to talk. We were too afraid to get up to go to the washroom, so we'd often pee our beds. When my mom finally got us back, she couldn't believe that we weren't potty trained anymore. I'm sure it was from the stress. Through all of this, the only person I had to help get me through it was my sister. We'd use our imaginations to escape the trailer home, escape the uncomfortable bedtimes, and the tragic backyard. I really can't imagine what it would have been like going through all of that on my own. Our mom worked hard as a single mom to be able to pay the bills and the debts that Frank left her with. She worked long hours, which meant that we spent days with babysitters or our great-grandma, but no matter what the situation, Carly and I were together. Mom eventually got remarried, had a baby with our stepdad, and started her own business as an esthetician. As we got older, she also traveled as a trainer for the nail brand OPI, served tables at a pub, and delivered papers late at night so she could afford to put us in private school. She and my stepdad also flipped houses on the side, so between all their hard work and many, many moves to different homes, we had gone from a low-income housing project to owning a trailer home to eventually an eight-bedroom estate with a view of the lake. During the course of our childhood, we went from poor to middle class because of our mom's hard work and tenacity, and I say this to explain that she was busy trying to build a better life for us, doing the things she needed to because she loved us and wanted the best for us. But being so busy meant she wasn't always that aware of what was happening in the shadows when she wasn't looking. Because we were moving so often, there were times we had to live with our grandma. She had a boyfriend named Dave. He was a quiet, friendly guy, a little awkward, always quick with a joke. He was short and husky with a bald circle on the back of his head and dimples when he smiled. He also had a daughter I met a few times who looked exactly like him. 
We lived with my grandma and in her place, we each had our own bedrooms and we loved it there. It would have been my favorite place if it hadn't been for Dave. At night, after everyone fell asleep, he would come to my bedroom. I remember waking up to his shadow in my doorway. He'd often say, you are coughing again. And then he'd come into my bedroom to give me cough syrup, rub my back for a bit, and then touch all over my body. Some nights, he'd tell me to come watch TV with him, and there he'd put a blanket over my little body and molested me. I'd do my best to drop hints about what was going on. Every single time my parents said we were going to my grandma's, I would say, is Dave going to be there? And mom almost always answered with, "Um, I don't know. But she never asked me why. That was always my first question. It seems obvious saying it now, but I'm sure back then I just seemed like a curious child. This was such a confusing time for me. It always felt like I was screaming on the inside, like I wanted everything to stop so badly. For some reason, I pictured my body as a map, and I hated that he knew every street, every corner, every intersection of it. The teachers at my school had taught us to say no to strangers, but this wasn't a stranger. This was someone my parents trusted, someone my grandma trusted. I mean, they would unknowingly leave us with him and say, be good girls, make sure you listen to Dave. So what was I supposed to do? He also did strange, petty things to make sure I knew he was in control. Like one time I was just walking through the kitchen, probably only 10 years old, and he said, turn around. I had no idea why he was saying it, and I felt safe in that moment because it was daytime and I wasn't in my bedroom, but he just shoved his rough hands up my shirt and said, okay, you can go now. It made me feel like I wasn't safe anywhere. One night when he'd crept into my bedroom, he was touching me all over, and all I wanted to say was, go be with grandma. And that's when he finally asked me in a low whispery voice. Do you like that? I gathered every ounce of strength I had in my body and I finally said, no. Now looking back, I'm sure I said it quietly, but at the time it felt like a scream. That word echoed in every cell in my body long after it came out of my mouth. I'd finally said it. Now he knew I didn't like it. He knew I hated it. I said the word I was supposed to say, so maybe now everything would stop, right? but he kept going. I hated it. I hated the way he breathed, the way his mouth moved, his shoulders, his hands. I hated every single second he spent in my bedroom, but I knew that as long as he was with me, he wasn't touching my sister. And I also knew that even if I said no, it was going to happen anyways. Carly and I never really talked about it, probably because we were so young and confused, we wouldn't have even known what to say. But one time, one time I said to her, if Dave ever comes near you, I need you to tell me, okay? All I wanted was to protect her. This continued for a long time until something happened that had me thinking maybe Carly had been being touched as well. Now it wasn't about me anymore. I needed to do something to stop it. The right moment struck on a family camping trip. We were sitting around the fire with the radio on. There was a news story that filled the air around us. They were talking about Michael Jackson and the charges that had been made against him. My mom poked the fire with a stick and said, We're so blessed we haven't had to deal with anything like that in our family. 
Carly and I made contact through the flames. I think that's exactly when we each realized that mom had no idea what we'd been going through. This was my time. My time to make everything stop. Her Michael Jackson comment opened a door for me and now I just had to walk through it. First, I pulled my sister aside and said, I'm telling mom tonight. She looked terrified, which told me she knew exactly what I was talking about. I walked back to the fire and I said, Mom, can I talk to you for a second? She looked confused and a little bit surprised and she said, of course. I looked at my stepdad sitting by the fire with my sister and I knew I wasn't ready to announce it to everyone. So I said, can we talk alone over there? I pointed to where I wanted to sit. Now she was extra concerned. She moved to the space that I pointed to, a grassy spot on the side of the hill just slightly out of earshot from the flames. I stuttered as I tried to find the strength for the words to come out. I said, Dave's been, been touching me. Touching you? Like where? I said, um, all over my body. She goes, like where? Where your bathing suit covers? I nodded. She said, here? She touched me. Here? Here? I said, yes. She said, when? Whenever he's there. That's when she lost it. She said, are you serious? In my own home? I've done the best that I could to protect you girls from strangers. Everything I can. I don't let you have sleepovers at random friends' houses. We have safety words. Everything. And you weren't even safe in your own bed? She started to cry. I'll kill him. I'll kill him. I'll fucking kill him. I pictured my mom in jail and I started to panic. I really hadn't thought she'd get this upset or even what would happen afterwards for that matter. She goes, I'm telling my mom and if she doesn't kick his ass out of the house, I'm never talking to her again. And then she cried the hardest I've ever seen her cry. I felt guilty. Did I hurt her? Maybe I should have kept it to myself. The fire was adding to the drama. I was shaking and Carly looked afraid too. The next thing I remember was my mom telling me that my grandma was coming over to visit and that I needed to stay downstairs practicing my piano. Eventually, she called to me from upstairs and said, Jaina, come say goodbye to grandma. I left my keyboard and made my way up the stairs towards her. As I saw her face, it was clear my grandma had been crying hard. I reached up, gave her a hug goodbye, and as our arms let go, she simply said, My grandpa did the same thing to me. I gasped. I wasn't the only one? Was this really that common? With so many questions, I had no idea where to get the answers. So the next time I went to the library, I signed out three books on sexual molestation and read them secretly. The fact that there were books on the subject told me that this was common. I had no idea. I read that 80 to 90% of sex trade workers report having been sexually abused as a child and that it also would increase my chances of being drug addicted or depressed. Was I going to end up being someone I didn't want to be because of what he did to me? Of course, as a little girl, I just didn't understand. That's when a voice inside my head spoke to me and said, if you become one of these statistics, Dave wins. That's when I convinced myself that I was stronger than anyone else who let the actions of somebody else turn them to a life that they weren't proud of. I decided that I was going to be as successful as possible as a giant middle finger to him, to those statistics, or to anyone who doubted me. 
I stayed focused on being successful. It was clear that I was far more driven than most of the kids my age. I played sports all year round. I was the head of a traveling drama team at school. I ran for Miss Colonna in a pageant, and I even started my own businesses. I babysat for local hotels, cleaned homes, and ran an arts camp for kids at a local resort. With the money that I made, I would put towards building homes for poor families in Mexico. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I was fighting to be better than who those books said I was going to be. Once I got my driver's license, I sat parked outside of a local escort agency, waiting and watching as the women would go in and out. I also drove past women standing on the street and I would cry. That's not ever going to be me. I did a really good job of managing all the ways my childhood had affected me. Plus, it helped that I had loving, supportive parents who put me in sports and gave me space to be myself. But we never, ever spoke of what happened with Dave again. My life moved on. The warrior inside of me pressed on. I studied psychology in university and wrote papers on how to help abuse survivors reclaim their bodies. As a hair and makeup artist, I'd sometimes share my story with other women, and so many of them would admit that they'd been through the same thing. On the outside, I was confident. I'd convinced myself that now I was completely fine. I'd pushed those memories far enough in the back of my mind and had enough new life experiences to make everything that Dave had done to me irrelevant. But I had no idea how it was still affecting me on a cellular level until this happened. You're going to have to forgive me as I stumble through this story because it's something I've really only spoken about to a couple of people. There was a man who emailed me one day saying that he had feelings for me. He'd been watching me online for years, apparently, and wanted to be my friend. I didn't need a friend, but he started calling me constantly, and sometimes we would talk. I didn't want to talk to him, but I did. At one point, his calls got to be too much, so I blocked his number, but he'd do this thing, what is it, star six nine, where you could block your caller ID and call anyways. Sometimes he would call 20 to 40 times a day. In the odd times I would pick up the phone, we would talk. He would ask for advice and act very concerned about me and if I was getting enough sleep. He made me feel like he cared. Really, he was just bullying his way into my life, but I didn't really realize it then. One night, I went to bed early because I had clients coming to my home in the morning. My phone rang. It was him. He was at a wedding and he asked me to drive him home from the party. It's something that I had done for friends of mine in the past, but I didn't consider him a friend. We'd never even hung out before. I didn't want to, so I told him to call a taxi. But he said, I'll sleep alone in this parking lot if you don't come get me. I knew he'd bother me until I said yes. And for some reason, I decided that if I just got up and drove him, I could be back home and in bed faster than if he kept calling me and harassing me all night long. So I got out of bed and I drove to pick him up. I didn't want to, but I did. As soon as he got in my car, I knew I'd made a mistake. He was giving me directions and I realized then that I had absolutely no idea where we were going or if he was actually taking me to his house or not. My heart sank when we turned the corner and I saw an empty field. I said, why are we here? This isn't your house. Please don't make me lose my trust in you. He said, get out of the car for a second. I want to show you something. I said, please no. I need to get home. I have to work. And then he took my keys out of my hand. He said, it's just going to be a minute. 
I said, fine. So I got out of the car. I didn't want to, but I did. He motioned for me to take a seat on the hood of my car. Again, I didn't want to, but I did. He'd been drinking and he was mumbling some things about how he knew that I had a boyfriend, but he didn't care. And that's when he stood up, threw my keys in the grass, pinned me by my shoulders and pushed me down on the hood of my car. He raped me in that field that night. I cried and begged for him to stop, but I knew he didn't care and no one could hear me. Finally, after hearing him mumble the words, I'm raping you for what seemed like the 50th time, I realized this must be his fantasy, so I stopped fighting back. He finished, and I searched the grass for my clothes and the keys. I fumbled to dress myself while wiping the tears, and I drove him home, crying the whole drive. I didn't want to, but I did. When I got back to my place, I remembered that I had clients coming to my home in 30 minutes, so I quickly pulled myself together. I put a scarf around my neck to hide all the bite marks and bruises, and I touched up my makeup and put a smile on for the booking. Afterwards, my boyfriend, who was long distance, called me over FaceTime. All I kept thinking was that this terrible person had taken something from him. I wasn't even concerned about my own body. I mean, it hadn't felt like my own since I was a little girl. A little girl. I flashed back to that moment when I said no and Dave did what he wanted anyways. I remembered always feeling like what someone else wanted from me was more important than what I wanted for myself. It became clear that what had happened to me as a child was still affecting me. I told my sister I was upset at what he did, but I was more upset that I didn't stop it at any point along the way. It was like I had no voice. I didn't like realizing that maybe I wasn't as badass as I thought I was. She said, voice or no voice, you should be able to give someone a ride home without getting raped. And she was right. I shared my story with a couple of my friends who told me that I had to talk to the police. So I did. The police officer that I spoke to told me all the steps I'd have to take in order to get a restraining order or to charge him. And I really felt embarrassed that I'd gotten myself into the situation. So I said, I'd rather not. But the police officer said, if you aren't willing to press charges, then can you at least accept some help? Because I think you really need it. He told me there was a community program where I could get 10 free counseling sessions. My knee-jerk response was to say, uh, thanks, but hell no. In my opinion, therapy was for losers who couldn't handle their problems. And I'd been managing mine since I was a little girl just fine. Or had I? He said there was a wait list and that he would put me on it so that I could decide when my name got to the top of it if I wanted to participate or not. And I agreed. Shortly after that meeting, someone that I'd met briefly a long time ago reached out to me. He said that I'd popped up in his Facebook feed and he started thinking that maybe I was the one for him and he wanted to get to know me better to see if his hunch was right. He'd call and we'd talk for hours, but I could tell that we were very different. There were quite a few things about him that told me that we would not be a good match, but it was still nice to talk to him sometimes. He was polite and respectful, so there didn't seem to be a reason not to pick up the phone when he'd call me. One day, he sounded extra excited on the phone. He said he wanted to make a trip to Vancouver to see the city and spend some time with me. I immediately got the no feeling, but I didn't want to offend him. So I said something about being really busy with work. 
And he said, that's fine. He'd entertain himself when I was busy. So I tried making up another excuse. Like I didn't have an extra room for him to stay in. And he said, that's fine. He'd get a hotel. I called my friend Elsa to complain that this guy was not picking up on my passive aggressive slash non-existent nose. And she said, well, you're always complaining that a guy never makes the effort for you. You're always flying out to see them. Now, finally, a dude does what you say you want him to and you reject him. She said, maybe you should give him a chance. So I thought maybe she was right. There was no harm in spending a little time with him while he was here. So the next time he called, he brought it up right away. And I said that I was looking forward to his visit. But I really wasn't. The next day I got a text from him. It said, so I was going to book a hotel, but I realized I'm getting in late and I don't want to waste money. So um, I'm going to stay at your place for the first night, then get a hotel if you'd like me to after that. Um, I'm sorry, what? I read it. It wasn't immediately filled with rage. This wasn't a question. He didn't ask me to stay at my place. This was such a strange way of forcing me to have him stay in my home. I knew that I didn't want him at my place, especially not on the first night. I wanted to tell him that I hated the idea, that he needed to book a hotel, and maybe, maybe at the end of the trip, if we were enjoying each other's company, he could stay with me. But I didn't say that. I just left him on red for three days till he sent me his flight confirmation. Fuck. I told all my closest friends I had an unwanted visitor and I showed them a screenshot of where he basically manipulated his way into staying in my place and everyone agreed that it was fucked up and that I should tell him not to come but for some reason, I couldn't. The day of his arrival came quickly. He let me know when he was about to take off and asked if he would see me at the airport. I had so much to do that day and the last thing I wanted to do was drive for an hour and a half out of my way to give him a ride but... I said, sure. I pulled up, he got into my car, and immediately I was overwhelmed with regret. That whole drive, I looked at the side of his face thinking, what the hell is this dude doing in my car? And why the hell am I driving his ass to my house when I don't even want him there? We stopped for a drink on the way home, and when I half-heartedly reached for the bill, he let me pay. I was testing him a little in that moment because all he'd ever talked about before coming to visit me was how much I deserved to have someone spoil me. Now I knew that was all just talk. By the time we got to my place, it was late and I was 100% regretting not standing up for myself as I opened the door to my condo. He walked in, looked around, made some awkward comments about my decor and then sat on the couch. I said, that couch pulls out to a bed. If you stand up, I'll set it up for you. And he goes, I thought I'd be sleeping in your bed tonight. No, just no. Thinking back, I know I wanted to say, no, I don't want you in my bed. I don't even want you in my car. And I definitely didn't want you in my house. There's the door. I don't care where you sleep tonight, but it's not going to be here. That's what I wanted to say. I was screaming it on the inside, but I didn't say a thing. Instead, I just went to the weed stash that I had saved for special occasions. He was a super straight laced, clean living, white collared kind of guy. So I offered him three weed gummies. He accepted. I watched as he ate them, then made conversation for about 40 minutes until he was straight passed out on my couch face, smushed into the armrest in a puddle of his own drool. I did it. I saved myself without having to say no. I tiptoed to my bedroom and went to bed peacefully. The next day, I told him I had back-to-back bookings, and whether I was actually working or not, I stayed the hell away from my place. I also used that same excuse when he needed to go to the airport. I just texted him the SkyTrain itinerary and said, Sorry, I can't give you a ride. I'm just so busy with work. Two days after he left, I got a call from that counselor's office. My name was now at the top of the list. 
maybe I did need some help. On my very first session, I opened up to my therapist about the things I'd gone through as a child. Yes, I was there to talk about the rape, but I knew deep down inside that the only reason why I ended up in that situation, because I couldn't stand up for myself. And that was the place I'd first lost my power. She asked me where the little girl inside of me felt safest. And I said, school. So she said, okay, let's imagine young Jaina is sitting in a classroom. Now I'd like you to walk in and talk to her. You can say anything you'd like. My head hung so heavy as I sat in that office across from Lorraine. I could not pick my eyes up. I felt too ashamed to look her in the face. I said, I'm sorry, I can't talk to Jaina right now. And I started to weep. Suddenly, I was seeing all her problems with an adult's perspective. I realized how many people had let her down, how unprotected she was, so lost, so hurt, and confused. I realized that I'd been embarrassed that she hadn't stood up for herself, but that shouldn't have been her responsibility at all. There was still that little girl inside of me, being as strong as she could be, but still so broken, and still with no voice. My therapist said that was a good start. You can talk to her when you're ready. And I left that session realizing all these years that I thought I was strong, I was simply coping. During one of my sessions, I actually received a text from that unwanted house guest. He said, hey, thanks for the visit. I was thinking I'd like to come again next month. Let's spend some more time together. My heart sank at the thought of it. But now I knew this was an opportunity for growth. I showed Lorraine the message and she said, I want you to type out exactly what you actually want to say. It wasn't at all hard for me to come up with the words. I knew exactly how I felt. No problem. But I was so terrified of typing it out for the fear that she was going to make me hit send. In fact, I got sweaty and visibly shaken at the idea. She said, what are you afraid of? I said, that you're going to make me send it. She said, and then what? I was silent. I don't know. I guess that I'd disappoint him. She said, do you care about him? I said, not even a little bit. In fact, I hope I never see him again. I don't even want to hear from him. She nodded her head. So why are you afraid of disappointing him? He's a grown man. He's been disappointed before. She was absolutely right. I knew she was right, but it's like there was a brick wall in front of me, stopping me from saying how I really felt. Of course, I'd learned from such a young age that what someone else wanted from me was more important than what I wanted. And even if I did stand up for myself, it wouldn't help anyways. I learned so much in those 10 sessions. The biggest thing being that it wasn't wrong to ask for help. And most importantly, I learned that while it wasn't my fault that I didn't have a voice, when it came to standing up for myself, it was my responsibility to learn now. Since then, I've done a lot to find my voice. It's still a struggle, to be honest with you. For as bold and as confident as I am, I still have a very hard time setting boundaries. But at least now I acknowledge it and have friends who help me when I need it. I decided to start this podcast knowing that I wanted to share my journey with others who might be able to relate. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to scream from the mountaintops that there are people out there hurting children and the effects that it has on them can be long term. I wanted to be a voice for those who held their pain in for so long. Most importantly, I wanted victims to know that they have nothing, nothing to be ashamed of. The perpetrators do. I recorded my story boldly. Episode one. Maybe you heard it. 
In that episode, I laid it all on the line and was counting down the days till my podcast was going to go live. I asked my sister if she was willing to join me in building a tribe of badass women, and when she agreed, I sent her that first episode to listen to, and I felt like a classic asshole as soon as I read her reaction. She said, Whoa, Jaina, you're telling my story too. Like a fool, I'd gone to the mic ready to share everything I'd gone through, completely forgetting that I had a sister who'd been through the exact same things as me, but was nowhere near as comfortable talking about it. She was a very different person on her healing journey than I was. I was embarrassed. I didn't want her to think I was insensitive, but I'd definitely been careless. We really had been through everything together, hiding in closets, escaping the trailer home, protecting ourselves from a predator, pretending we were okay. I said, I'm so sorry. I know it must be hard for you, but I have a feeling that we're going to be able to help so many more people who've been through the same thing as us. I want to help as many women as we can to know that they can not only heal, but thrive after sexual abuse, that they have nothing to be ashamed of. She thought about it for a little bit and said, you know what? Fine. Maybe it'll help me too. So we did it. On release day, I laid it all out there. I said my whole life story. It truly felt like I was standing naked in front of a firing squad or taking a leap off a cliff with no idea if I was going to land on my feet or splat my guts all over the pavement. Then the feedback started coming in. Message after message, DM after DM, women were telling us their experiences. Many of them saying that I was the first person they'd ever told their struggles to. An elementary teacher said after hearing our show that she was going to teach inappropriate touching differently from now on. She was going to make a point of saying that it could be anyone, even a family member, and that if you don't feel safe to talk to someone in your home, you can always tell a teacher at school. Email after email, message after message, women were saying, you're telling my story too. I was told one story of a woman who was planning her wedding and her family had invited the man who'd molested her her entire childhood. She said that he was the person they rented their basement suite from when she was a kid, but their parents had no idea that he'd been inappropriate. I said she absolutely had to tell them so this person wasn't at her wedding. How could she celebrate with him in the room? And she said she couldn't because they were friends and she didn't want to start drama. No friend does that to your child. And the only reason they're friends is because they don't know the truth. And she wouldn't be the one starting the drama. He did it the first time he touched her. And that's when it hit me. Somewhere inside of her, there was still a scared little girl who thought if she said something, if she stood up for herself, her family would have nowhere to live. But her family doesn't live in that house anymore. And that little girl needs someone to stand up for her. So now, I'd like to give my sister the mic. It's finally Carly's turn to stand up for herself. That little girl inside of her has something she needs to say. I have like a big knot in my throat and I can't talk. Do you want me to read it for you? can do as a child I was sexually abused I never spoke of it not to a single soul I pushed it deep deep down I never admitted it to myself 
not to anyone, that something like this could ever happen. One year at school, very beginning of a school year, a school counselor came to the door of my English class and said the name of one student. They asked if they could speak to that student privately, and the student was gone for the majority of the class. Word spread quickly around our class that this was what they were calling a wellness check. The counselors were checking on each of the students to see if there's anything that they needed to talk about. When I first heard this, my throat closed so tight and it felt like I was hauling a boulder around in my stomach. I knew if I was sitting face to face with a trained professional, it would be clear just by looking into my eyes and looking at my face that everything wasn't all right. I was sure that they'd be able to see right through this strong exterior that I'd built to all of my fear and my pain inside. So I would lay in bed at night and I'd rehearse the words in my head that I could say. I tried to will my mouth to be brave enough to turn these sounds into words. I didn't have the courage to fully express the extent of what I'd experienced, but I came to the decision that when they asked me, I'd just say, I'm not safe and I've been hurt. Throughout that school year, I was withdrawn. I was preoccupied with every single upcoming English class. Once or twice a week, when the counselors would knock on our door, I couldn't breathe. This was it. They were coming to check on me. The blood would drain from my face, and I couldn't feel my hands. And I told myself, I could do this. I can stand up. I can walk to the office. I can tell them that I'm not okay. I'd become lightheaded. I'd hyperventilate, and my hands would shake, and I'd wait. But week after week, a different name was called. As we neared the end of the school year and the weeks were running out, I told myself, I can make it till next year. I can just, I can get help next school year. I just need to make it through the summer. But next year, I'd aged out of the wellness check and my name was never called. I never had the courage to ask for help for myself. I spent my entire childhood just waiting for someone to ask me if I was okay. Likely, they'd have to ask me more than once because I'd become a master at telling myself and everyone else around me that I was all right. This is still something I'm not comfortable talking about, but I'm here on my sister's podcast, the only person in the world I ever confided in, and I'm here to represent all of the silent sufferers that did not take a stand for themselves. Even though Jane and I are so close, in this regard, we've been so different. So I'm here to encourage you to please check on your girls, your strong, quiet girls, and give them permission to share their burden, because they might not be as all right as they seem. We all need to stand up for that little girl and every other child like her. Only 10% of child molestation is actually done by a stranger. About 90% of child victims of sexual abuse knew their abuser and were trusted by the family. We tell children and women how to avoid getting hurt, how to say no, how to make sure you're not a target, but no one stands up at a family meeting and says, see these kids right here? You know these kids in our family? If anyone in this room does anything to hurt them, your balls are going to be in a mason jar on the fireplace mantle, respectfully. It's not up to the kids to protect themselves. And by the time it's happened, the damage is done. It's already too late. We're so afraid of having awkward conversations with the men in our lives. But I promise you, if laying down the law in your family saves even one child from the irreversible effects of being molested, then I promise you it's worth it. 
Plus, men with good intentions should have absolutely no problem with this being said. Sure, you think it's common knowledge that men shouldn't touch or hurt children, but considering 80% of women say they've been sexually assaulted in some way before the age of 25, this means that offenders aren't just creepy guys in back alleys or long vans with small windows. They look like your brother, your uncle, or your father, and that is the real talk. So what can we do? First of all, we have to admit that this happens in our community. You have to admit that this could happen in your family. Second, have an open dialogue with your kids. You need to say, if someone ever makes you feel uncomfortable, please tell us. You'll never be in trouble. Third, trust your gut. If you feel some type of way about someone in your family, it might be for a reason. And even if you're wrong, it's better to be safe than sorry. Next, Understand that the perpetrator is the one causing the drama, not the victim who's saying something about it. I'm going to say that again. Understand that the perpetrator is the one who caused the drama, not the victim who's standing up for themselves. Next, keep your antennas up for subtle hints that something is wrong, like a child asking if someone is going to be there all the time. Lastly, Be an ally to anyone who comes forward. The first thing you should always say when someone comes forward with something like this is, I believe you. Far too many women and even some men have reached out to me saying that they can relate to my story. And while I'm glad they have a way of not feeling alone, I hate it. I don't want anyone else suffering because of the selfishness of someone that their family trusted. If you can relate to my story, here are some things that help me. Tell someone. Suffering in silence makes you feel like you've done something wrong. Also, you have to forgive yourself. You are not to blame. I blamed myself for what happened to me as an adult, but I should have been able to give someone a ride without being raped, and I should have been able to sleep in my own bed as a child without being touched. Lastly, understand that you're not responsible for the pain others caused you, but you are responsible for the healing afterwards. Don't be afraid to try counseling. I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for Lorraine. Thank you for listening. I know this was heavy, but it had to be said. Carly and I took the first steps by being as real as we could about this. Now, can you please, please, please share this with a friend? This is a message that needs to go viral. If you need someone to talk to, we've added places you can find help in the show notes and we'll always do anything we can. Now, till next week, please go be your most fabulous self and don't forget to spread that badass big lash energy everywhere you go. Thank you. Goodbye.